All right, there we go. Carmen, thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate you being the first interview back um, on my podcast after a seven-year hiatus. So thank you very much. Scott, it's such a pleasure. <laughs> so a little, uh, basically, I kind of wanted to do a show where I talk to people that interest me, that do things that interest me. And the name of the show is Sunday Morning Coffee Podcast, because I pictured people waking up on a Sunday morning, making their coffee, sitting down and listening to the show. So that's why I release them on Sunday mornings. And that's kind of the vibe that I go for. So um, I've been looking forward to talking to you uh, since we arranged this. Amazing. And I'm here. I don't drink coffee, but I have my tea and I am in the vibe with you. Ready. Sunday, Sunday morning tea podcast works just the same. <laughs> <laughs> so first off, I think we'll just start um, for those that don't uh, know you, know of you, know what you do. If you could just give a little bit of background and feel free to go into as much detail as you want. Um, how you ended up um, in Northern Ontario on a farm with horses doing the coaching and, and so on that you do. Sure. Um, I'll try to keep it concise, but I also appreciate the openness to. Okay. We have an hour. We have, yeah, we have yeah. an hour. <laughs> Cause it's a little bit of a story. <laughs> That's okay. We're here yeah. for stories. Super. So I grew up in Montreal and I ended up, um, through a series of life events, there were many, but there was a particular event that took place that was um, quite traumatic and really shifted my life perspective. And what it did for me was it really forced me in this really intense, but also beautiful way to recognize A, that I was really alive and B, that I am living this life. So if I'm going to be doing this life here on earth, what am I doing with it? <laughs> and at the time I was studying social services at Dawson College. And what I realized was that I just really wanted to be out of school. I felt like I was trapped in a box. I was in this cage, even though I actually really loved what I was learning. And I was doing this fantastic internship at this youth center. And I loved the teachers and I loved the material and it just felt really aligned and good for me. The actual concept of being in this school, in this classroom, it was just, it felt very stifling. And my heart was so drawn to being in nature. I really just needed to be closer to something green and out of the concrete jungle. And, um, and I was looking through this opportunity to go woofing, which is willing workers on organic farms. And my then boyfriend, you know, husband, we were looking through these options of where could we go? Um, and what you, what you are offered in that opportunity of woofing is you're given this booklet and it shows you all these different farms in a particular country that are willing to have you be there in exchange for room and board. So you volunteer and then you get to stay there in exchange. So we chose this farm, which was like in neon lights flashing at me because there were horses on the farm. And I remember getting to the farm and the very first night, um, the owner invited me to come down to the barn with her, which I jumped on the opportunity. And there were 24 horses and she was feeding them dinner. And I was standing in the middle of the barn and they started chewing and eating their dinner. It was like surround sound horse chewing. And I felt like I was forever changed in my being. And uh, I just couldn't imagine my life without them. 
So, you know, one, two, skip a few. I, uh, after many years of, well, I was on the farm for a couple of years and then I ended up getting an apprenticeship as a farrier. So I take care of horses feet. Um, and I've been doing that for 15 years. So I'm kind of like an unofficial foot doctor for horses, putting <laughs> shoes on, trimming this and that. Um, you can also think of it kind of like an unofficial hairdresser role. I'm kind of like the hairdresser of the horse industry. So I'm always talking to so many people from different backgrounds and between learning how to work with the horses, working with so many different people, and of course, learning how to be with myself, they kept just leading me back around to my own healing journey and leading me back to my social services roots. So I wanted to become a bridge builder, I say, between the worlds of horses and people, where I can try to support others and I feel like I do an okay job at that, where I can offer transformational opportunities where they get to be with horses in a way that really helps people learn more about themselves, um, help them in relationship with themselves and others, and learn how to be more empowered in every way, in an, with clarity, with connection, and courage in how they're walking through life. And that's kind of how I think about it, like we're developing horse sense as people. So that's how I kind of came to this work. And my partner and I, we have a farm between Brooks Falls and Magnetowin in Ontario, where we offer these programs and sessions and workshops and doing our best to help our humans become a little bit more horse-like. That's great. And so um, I'm not going to ask too much about the traumatic event, um, but what age was that for you? And how did you see the change what change did you see in yourself from before that event to after that event i'm happy to share about it too i always like to give a little bit of a buffer room because i know it can also be activating for some listeners um so with that uh so there was a school shooting at dawson college and i remember that yeah yeah so I was there. Um, I actually should have been right in the center of it. And the only reason I wasn't because I had this six hour class and it was like clockwork, one of those super precise classes where it was nine to noon and then we had an hour for lunch and then one to four. And that was the only day of the entire year that we ended up going to lunch 20 minutes late. And that wow. 20 minutes saved my life. Now I still was stuck in a classroom and listening to everything going on and it was very intense experience. Um, but I am not grateful it happened. I would never say that. Um, it was terrible for everyone involved. Mm -hmm. um, and also it really shook me up to being more empowered to take the reins in my own life, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So I'd and say beforehand, just to answer your question, um, beforehand, I, although felt like I had a strong connection to myself, maybe didn't have the courage to really listen to what my heart was telling me right. and feel like I could let go of the expectations that others held over me. And then afterwards that changed everything. And how long would you say, because obviously in the immediate aftermath of that event, there's the shock and the confusion and there's questions that you know in your head and etc um how soon after that did you notice hey so i'm thinking about things differently here 
was that an immediate thing? Did it take a little while? What was that process like? I think kind of both. Like there was definitely an immediate shift where I remember coming outside, being escorted outside by a group of police officers, really not believing while I was in the classroom that I was going to make it outside. I had like come to terms with the fact that I was likely going to die. And I remember that moment inside of my body of like, it was almost panic, but then it was just kind of this acceptance of it. And I was, I wouldn't say, it wasn't like I was floating above and I was, yeah, it was just kind of a weird moment of like, well, if this is the end, then that's the end. It was Mm -hmm. kind of resigned, but not apathetically. It's kind of weird. Um, But then I went outside and I felt the sun on my face and I was like, well, I guess that chapter didn't happen or end the way I momentarily thought it was going to. And I really felt this shift in my being of like, I'm alive. (laughs) I'm actually here. And it just kind of shifted everything in my being about how I was seeing the world. And although I wasn't immediately starting to go, well, I'm going to make all these changes. It just, it's like I was suddenly wearing a different set of lenses. Mm -hmm. So as I moved through the next year and it took about six months or so um, to, to make some big choices and decide to leave school early and all these things. But just as things would come up and as I was navigating options that would come my way, whether they were big or small, I just felt like I had more of a lease on my own life that it was actually mine to live and not the muddled up version that I think we can sometimes (laughs) feel when we are so intertwined with others when we have family expectations when there's societal expectations when there's a lot of people in our life who maybe even care very deeply about us but have their own version of what a healthy fulfilled life would be for us and I think it really kind of shattered a lot of those ties in a way that was like well no one's going to live my life for me so the fact that I actually get to live one it's going to be in my on my terms Yeah, I guess that's the thing, right? Like you all of a sudden have this new lease on life that you maybe 30 seconds ago didn't think you were going to get. And I guess that makes you really rethink how you want your life to be. Because, you know, when we live a comfortable life, and I know this very well, um, it's very easy to get it on the train tracks and you're just going along those train tracks. And I did that for many years. And part of my moving back here up north and getting the new job was me saying, no, I can't, I can't coast anymore. And I'm, I'm sure when you go through something like what you went through, that urgency is much more immediate. That's a great way to put it. And I love what you just said. I can't coast anymore. And I'll still have my moments of noticing that I might be sure. in certain things. And we're human. We're human, exactly. Um, but it's very clarifying. I think death is very clarifying, whether we lose someone we love or we're considering our own um, ending, you know, or ending in this chapter, however we want to look at it, depending on our belief system. No matter what our beliefs are, death is very clarifying. And I really appreciate having that moment as well as just other considerations you know thinking about how do I want to feel if I do get to live a long life how do I want to feel looking backwards because the time doesn't necessarily mean a good life so how can I look back and actually feel like it was a life well lived and so from there um 
so you've explained the story about how the horses came into it. And I, I was chuckling a little bit when you were telling me that story, because, you know, we all have sounds that we love and the thought of 24 chewing horses being your heavenly sound, just, it brought me a good chuckle. So, <laughs> but I, I can picture that in my head right now. <laughs> and it, Trust me, Scott, it brought me a good chuckle too, because honestly, the sound of people chewing it's awful it's awful like I'm like very highly sensitive to it and I have to you know do things to mitigate that issue when I'm amongst humans Um, yeah and you can't tell them to chew chew with their mouth closed either no unfortunately sometimes (laughs) I would love to but um Mm -hmm. no it it gives me like full body discomfort sometimes listening to humans but with the horses it was such the opposite it was the complete opposite and it's neat as I learn more and more about what it is with horses that really helps us, not just in this kind of emotional way and an intangible way, but there's a lot of measurable physiological shifts that happen when we're in proximity to horses. And one of them is that our nervous system starts to um, come to a different place and our hearts function differently. And there's all kinds of really neat effects that we can have on the human body just by being in the vicinity of horses. And what happens when our nervous system is in a calmer place, we actually have um, more of those uh, nerve um, endings and stuff in our ears and in our, our cranial nerves that open up and shift. And a lot of it's connected to hearing. So it's not just me, but many people who come through will actually talk about how their hearing will change when they're in the space, when they have a nervous system and a calmer state in their body, they'll suddenly start to hear the birds in a way that they didn't before. They'll be listening to the horses breathing in a way that would have been, you know, not accessible to them just moments earlier before we kind of got into that different state. So, you know, looking back on a lot of my earlier horse experiences before I had the training and as the research has been coming out over the last many years, um, it's neat to kind of piece things together and go, okay, so it's not just my experience. It's not just woo woo either. There's real measurable pieces to why horses are so important in our healing and our growth. That's amazing. I did not know that fact, but now that I think about it, I guess if you're in a situation where you're anxious or scared or whatever the emotion may be, that feeling must take away from all of your other senses. And yeah, so I can, I can totally understand that. So a funny little story when my son was younger, he's 18 now, which is crazy, but um, he for a while was obsessed with horses. And so I used to live down South um, just about half an hour outside of Toronto. And there's a lot of horse farms And so I would remember many weekends, we would just go driving the countryside looking for horses so that he could see some horses, not to a particular farm, not to just driving through the country. And if we saw some near a fence or whatever, we'd pull over, we'd get out, he'd look at them for a while, we'd go on to the next one. And I just, just that thought just came to my head actually as you were talking. So that that's a, a good memory that that I have about horses as well. So oh, that's, that's so uh, cool. Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, I'm, I think he still likes horses, but he, he goes through. He has some traits that I have. He goes through phases where he gets obsessed by certain things. And like I remember for a while it was ducks. He loved ducks. Than, than horses and he just goes from face to face but yeah so that um you know just remembering him 
how he was and how happy he was just to see them. Um, just, and of course he was smaller and they were massive and majestic and, you know, it's just, he, he loved it. That makes me so happy. And I, <laughs> I understand. <laughs> I'm sure you do. Yes. Uh, so the, the to transition now to the coaching side of things a little bit, um, what was the process there to, that got you into that? So the horses came first, I'm assuming, or did you always happen to somewhere in your head have an idea that that's the kind of thing that you wanted to do, or did that sort of uh, come around and evolve as time went on? I guess a little bit of both. More, more I guess, the evolution piece. I, I started out in social services, so I, I did have that piece around wanting to be of – um, support to others. And I didn't know necessarily what that was going to look like, uh, but I really loved that role and learning more about myself through that process, learning about other people, learning about the world, learning about other cultures. Um, so there's always just been this fascination with like, how do we work? And not only how do we work, not physically work, but you know, how do we function with each, with ourselves, with each other? What, how do relationships work? What makes them tick? What makes them break? Um, what what actually helps? What harms? And so I've had that kind of lens for a long time. So when I started getting very involved with the horses, first on the farm and then in my farrier work, what happened is that they, okay. So just to put this in perspective, fair to be a farrier, I have to put the horse's leg through mine. I am trimming their huge feet, sometimes small feet, if it's a mini or, you know, smaller horse, but nonetheless, they're very strong. They tend to be very powerful. <laughs> they can do damage. If they you're can not do careful. a lot of damage yeah. quick. Uh, insurance rates for farriers are rated the same as military. It's a very dangerous job. Wow. It's also a beautiful job, but it can turn risky fast and you can literally get kicked out of the business any day. Yeah. <laughs> And it's not always because, you know, they're trying to hurt you. However, sometimes they are. But again, not even their fault, because there's always a good reason. And so the more that I learned about horses and why they behave certain ways, overcoming my own fear of them, because although I got to the farm and that first night I was enamored and just going, oh, my gosh, I have to find ways to be with them all the time. I also had a lot of fear. Um, there were a lot of horses at that farm that were not safe to be around, especially for me as a person who knew nothing. And I did get some significant injuries while I was there. And at one point I had a shoulder dislocation and um, caused by a horse, by this incident with a horse. And I, I was a kind of at a fork in the road and it was either that I could be really scared and just stay further away and love them from afar or learn as much as what was possible in this little life of mine to figure out why that happened and how I could prevent that from happening in the future and all kinds of other things to just learn as much as possible so that connection and closeness could be possible. And I'm so glad I chose that because it allowed me to be open to the idea of even becoming a farrier and doing that apprenticeship. And as I kept going in that direction of working with them, you know, it was just this constant search of like, well, how can I be safe in this job? Because that's the first goal. <laughs> I don't want to die doing this. So how do I be safe doing this job? And that kept leading me back around to how am I showing up in this job? How am I showing up in this moment? How, what's happening inside of me? What's being activated or triggered inside of me? Um, how is the horse mirroring or kind of having this emotional contagion that's happening with me? 
Or if it has nothing to do with me, also to recognize that and recognize that the horse has their own circumstances. Maybe they have pain. They have an environment that they don't feel safe in. Maybe they've had bad experiences with farriers before. And so I'm coming in with a really bad reputation, even if they've never met me before. Um, there's so many options of why they might not want to cooperate, why it might not be safe. But if I understand that and I can, if I can have a tremendous amount of acceptance and compassion for exactly where they're at in that moment, now there's opportunity and choice of how to navigate it, as well as my own self-awareness. How can I have <laughs> tremendous compassion and acceptance for what I'm experiencing and have choice about how to move forward? Maybe I need to go take a bathroom break <laughs> and cry in the bathroom for a minute and come back <laughs> in a more regulated state. And that's okay. Or maybe I need to you know, just take a moment and step aside and do some calm breathing and re-engage when the time feels like it's right. Mm -hmm. or ask for help. Maybe it's not enough to do certain tools and I do need support from a veterinarian with whatever way, maybe some sedation or this or that for more extreme cases, mm -hmm. which are rare and far and few between. But nonetheless, it's that same concept of there's still choices that don't include violence. There's still choices that include actually enhancing connection instead of breaking connection. Mm -hmm. So as I kept learning more and more about that for myself, for the horses and seeing these immediate results as I would learn more tools, learn more about them, learn about, about me, learn more about regulation and my nervous system, access different ways of being with them and kind of have this laboratory of I'm always exploring and practicing each horse, each moment of the day is this opportunity to learn. And even if it was a school of hard knocks, sometimes I'm learning a lot. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. There's so, so many, there's ahead. so many parallels, what you just said, um, to how we interact with our own lives and people. Um, we can either stand on the periphery at a safe distance, or we can take the risk to learn and get our hands dirty and, you know, go for that relationship or that job or that new skill or whatever it may be. And, you know, I mentioned to you earlier that I found myself on those train tracks, just not going anywhere. And that's what I was doing. I was staying on the outside where it was safe. You can't hurt me. I'm out here, but it's unfulfilling and it's not a good kind of safe. It's a kind of safe that, you know, is like the overprotective parent that won't let you out of the nest um, and so when you were saying that, I was listening to the rest of what you were saying, but I was thinking, man, this is like, there's so many parallels uh, to every other aspect of our life, um, with what you just said about, you know, your introduction to the horses and so on. Yeah. I really appreciate you sharing that, Scott. And I can understand it very well, um, that, that place that we find ourselves kind of watching our life being lived technically by us, but not really by our heart and having that courage to let our heart lead the way at least some of the time and then more and more over time mm -hmm. um, is scary and we can get hurt. But the alternative for me, and I think this is kind of what you're saying too, it's scarier because mm -hmm. then we're disconnected from our truest, most alive version of ourselves and you don't even realize it in the moment. Like if I if I look back to those, and it wasn't that long ago, I can say, you know, I thought I was living my life, but I really wasn't. 
you know, it was almost living me. And, um, you know, there, I had some people around me that um, were very good for me in making that apparent because I can honestly say I'm not sure if I would have at that time. Um, but, you know, the different, like now I'm, and for the record, I'm originally from Northern Ontario, I'm born and raised in Mattawa. Um, and sorry, just a surprise little uh, notification came up on my screen here. Uh, there we go. Um, so, yeah, so um, coming back here was part of me taking back that my life and taking control where I was just sort of gliding through and, you know, not really... Um, I would, I would pretty much say without a purpose and got the new job, which is where we met, um, obviously. And that job has also, like, it was a perfect storm um, because like you were saying earlier, when you're confronted by death and through my job, I meet a lot of people that have been confronted by death and it can't help but make you think, man, I'm going to be out of here someday. And is this what I want on my deathbed to remember my life being? No, that's not, that's not what I want. That's not what I want for anybody that, that cares about me. That's not what I want for myself. And yeah, so sometimes it doesn't, you know, like obviously a traumatic event like what you went through is quite the uh, awakening um, and, but other times you just need someone that gives you that kick in the ass, pardon my language. Um, and I'm very lucky that I had someone that did that for me. I'm so happy for you too. So mm -hmm. how, so let's sort of, I'm all over the place here. Like I mentioned, I don't really script anything cause I just like it to be conversational. So, how did you decide on the farm where you currently are? What was it about the, was it the area? Was it the farm itself? Was it both? What led to that uh, decision? Um, I would love to answer your question. Do I have permission to put it on pause and circle back to some things that you were saying? Cause I just Absolutely, really, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I right just no, love, no, love what you were sharing. And um a couple of things came up that I wanted to speak on. One, Absolutely. you know, I don't think we need a hugely impactful moment to necessarily shift how we're seeing our lives. Um, and this is what I really love about the horses. Yes, we need an impactful moment. I don't mean to say like not impactful, but like not traumatic. I don't think mm -hmm. we need trauma to create positive transformation. That's a good, good thing. Yeah. That's a good thing. Um, yeah. And I see that all the time happen here with clients and the horses where we can have these moments where the more we get connected to our body, the more we become embodied and clear about what our body is actually saying to us in the moment and having this direct line of communication where we're not just these brains living with a body, but we're actually in alignment and allowing our energy to flow in all directions. I think that embodiment piece is so huge to the recognition 
of how we're living our life and how are we moving forward and what actually feels right in alignment for us and what's true when it can be so easy to, like you say, you know, be just on that hamster wheel. Uh, I can, you know, you're talking about being on those tracks and like we can get so on that busyness where we're busy doing things all the time and we forget how to be in and with ourselves and part of ourselves. And I'm just curious because you said that you really didn't know, but was there a part of you in your being, in your physical being that was off, that was trying to tell you? Oh, absolutely. Now, and again, that's also more clear now that I'm, you know, that I've been thinking about it and working to change it because at the time it's just the routine. It's the day to day. You don't really think about it. You think, oh, I got to, got to do this work. I got to do this. And it's just the routine sets in and the rot sets in. And um, yeah, there was always part of me that knew this isn't right. Like this isn't, that's just the best way to put it. This isn't right. But I don't think I had the courage to, to fix it at the time. And yeah. And, you know, that was like when I think about and and I try not to because there's no sense beating myself up over it. It happened. Uh, I'm fixing it. That's what's important. But when I think of the lost time, that sometimes I just like almost makes me feel like sick Mm -hmm. to think about it. Um, So, yeah, I definitely definitely knew that I was not fulfilling what I could be and what my life could be. I really appreciate your willingness to share and have me ask you some questions on that piece too. Um, Cause sure. I actually find it really hopeful and beneficial, hopefully for anyone listening. Um, and this is what I find with myself and with the clients we work with is that even though we may have, you know, looking back and go, I wish it didn't take so much time or this or that. First of all, to have that awareness and that compassion that like things take the time it takes. And sometimes we have to be in a certain situation for long enough for the discomfort to get big enough for actually a change to occur. I think sometimes it forces the courage when we get so (laughs) at a certain point. Mm -hmm. Um, But I love that, that piece around that you did have a certain knowing in your body, even if you didn't have the clarity of really what it was telling you, you didn't have the courage to really listen, whatever that looks like, the the safety, sometimes we don't feel safe enough to actually listen to what's being told to us in our body. But I find it so comforting to know that our body really does have a lot of wisdom and can help us find the path forward in a good way. Mm -hmm. Um, Because otherwise we're kind of just you know, feeling a little bit lost and in the dark. And when we kind of reflect back and we're going, oh, I really had no idea, but it's like, but actually I had this best friend in my being who did know, and it's okay that I wasn't ready to know with my body, but my body did know. And, you know, I just, I, I, I love the process of how the horses and how the different work that's out there, whether it's the coaching I do or other people do that again, brings us back into our body. And I think that that's, the most powerful healing that we can do, not just for ourselves, but in the world at large. Because I think we can become so disconnected, so dissociated from what's real, from what's true, from our heart. And to have that ability to create those connections again, to create those links again, it gives me a lot of hope. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, 
as I'm sort of going through this um, metamorphosis, let's call it, um, I think of things that kind of make me laugh, but make me shake my head as well. Because I would, would remember going back to Mattawa, where I was born and raised. And I would see the same people sitting on the same bench, doing the same thing. And the hypocrite in me would say, oh, look at, you know, still sitting here doing nothing. And now it's like, I won't say the words that I think in my own head, but I think, how dare you think that about somebody else? Mm. Because you were not doing that exact same thing, but you were doing the same thing day after day. And, you know, so that thought, thinking about those people and thinking about myself, you know, it, uh, it sort of gives me a different perspective on myself and other people as well, because I don't know what they've been through. I don't know what they're going through. I don't know anything about them other than they're sitting on this bench and I have no right to be a hypocrite about what they're not doing when I'm not doing it. So, you know, that's another thing that's really kind of shifted in my head is, mm -hmm. and my job has also helped that a lot, a yeah. lot, a lot. Um, yeah. Like it's, I, I'm finding that I have more compassion than I think I've ever had. Mm -hmm. Um more open-minded and it, I'm still a work in progress because I still get judgmental and you know because I'm a human being human. and <laughs> and I've been living that way for 50 53 years <laughs> <laughs> but you know to to just that just that change in thinking like has made a big difference in my own mind thinking that no that they're no different than you are, you know, yeah. the, so that, that's been a big, big sea change for me. Uh, I, I love that, Scott. I, there's an author, Glennon Doyle, who I love some of her work and um, she has a great podcast too. <laughs> Anyhow, she, in one of her books called Untamed, she talks about emotional triggers as someone leaving a package on your doorstep. And I love this concept because I, I'm thinking about this as you're talking about the people on the bench, right? Where all of us will have these moments where we can get judgmental, we can get activated for whatever reason by other people's behavior, by their, their life decisions. And she describes it like they're actually offering you a parcel, a little package. And we get to open up the package and go, oh, I'm going to learn something about myself with this. And so when we have those moments of activation by looking at other people in that kind of judgmental way, it's going, okay, there's something here that I'm supposed to learn. And it's actually about me. And I need to be actually looking inward to go, what is it about their behavior that's signaling something that I need to be shifting or learning or making more space for in myself? Mm. And I just love that way of thinking about it because it's so understandable. <laughs> We're yeah. human. We have these moments all the time. And once we recognize that we have them, what can we do with them? And I just, I love that. It just feels so kind to me. Are you familiar at all with the works of uh, Marcus Aurelius and Stoicism and basically the, Stoicism, the Stoic philosophy basically boils down to 
control what you can, what is in your control. And I found that I spent way too much time worrying about things I couldn't control and worrying about things that in the grand scheme of things just were not important, like posting on Facebook and seeing those likes come in and getting that little dopamine hit and arguing on Twitter and just, you know, just again, getting on those train tracks. And, you know, I'm very new to the, to the stoicism philosophy, the stoic philosophy, but that kind of, you know, control what, worry about what you can control and everything else will hopefully fall into place. Hmm. And again, that sort of ties into what I was just saying about judging other people. I can't control them. I don't know them, but I can control what I do and how I think. And, you know, that's just, it. he has a, Marcus, there's a book called Meditations and Marcus Aurelius and it's been translated and re-released like many, many times. And they're little bite-sized snippets of wisdom. And I try to read one and repeat it every day. And, you know, that it's so, it's funny where we find our comfort and where we find our spark of inspiration. But that one has been a big one for me. So I completely get your story about, you know, the, the part that, that stuck with you because I find anecdotes like that are very powerful. And, you know, cause if you talk to someone in a very clinical, um, what's the word? Um, I've lost the word, but anyway, a very clinical way, it's not really going to sink in, but if you boil it down to something bite-sized that, people can relate to it's gonna it's gonna take yeah exactly and what a beautiful practice Scott of reading those every day I'm not I mean I know who he is a little bit but I'm not familiar in depth with the work at all so that's really lovely to hear how you're integrating it yeah it's been great so it's just one of the many things I'm trying to do but uh you know it's it's been very very helpful so nice All right, so let's move along to uh, where you are now and how that came about. Sure. So um, my partner and I, we got married when um, shortly after we left the farm. We were volunteering in exchange for Women Board. We were young, we're 22. And um, And sorry, where was that farm again? It was near Rosso, Ontario. Okay, so it it was in Ontario. Okay, It was, yeah. I actually, we thought we were going to travel across Canada going woofing, and we only planned on being at that first farm for two weeks, but we ended up staying almost two years. <laughs> so we stayed there for a very long time. Then it was clear that we really needed to move on and do other things. I got my apprenticeship as a farrier, Aquila, that's my partner. He got um, a cook, his first cooking job. He's now a chef and a caterer, and he now caters exclusively for our events and programs and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, anyhow, we had wanted to go to India because part of my family 
um, lineage is from India and we had wanted to go there for a long time. And when we got married, uh, we got some financial gifts and we're like, well, we need to go now because if we're not going to take this opportunity, we're going to get too wrapped up in life and on that wheel, like we're talking about or on the tracks and, um, and it's just not going to happen. So we, we made the plunge. We went to India for three months. And when we were there, we sat down at this little tiny hole in the wall restaurant. There was just one little table, two rickety chairs and the curry that would blow your head off. It was so hot, but it was delicious. <laughs> Man, I and... would not do well with that. <laughs> <laughs> I do not do well with spices. <laughs> it would literally blow my head off probably. <laughs> right? <laughs> no, well, luckily we were both excited about the food. <laughs> and um, and we, we had a really good talk of like, okay, we've spent this time on the farm, we got married what are we doing with our life? Where do we actually want to see things going? And even though I didn't know about the kind of training and programs that I have done to do this work as a coach now, I just knew that I wanted to have a farm where we could provide some kind of healing and growth to all who were there, myself, the horses, Aquila, other people, as many as possible in a way that felt actually healthy and good and doing our best and we both had the same vision we both really felt like this was what we wanted to do we wanted to have a farm of our own one day where we could really have healthy parameters of how that could look and we didn't know any of the details but we're like well let's just draw it out let's draw out what would be the ideal farm to be conducive and supportive to that kind of dream and on this curry stained napkin, we drew this farm where it had some water and open fields, but also forest and all these things. And we drew it out and I didn't save the napkin, Scott. <laughs> I should have saved the napkin because six or seven years later, when we were looking around to see if maybe, maybe, maybe we could afford a farm somewhere, we drive onto this property between Brooksville and Manganawan. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's that farm. It's the farm on the napkin. And it was crazy. Mm -hmm. We didn't even go in the house. We're like, we, we know, we know that this, this is, is the place. Yeah. This mm -hmm. is it. doesn't matter what the house looks like. <laughs> this is is there a house? Who cares? Yeah, I don't even care. We're just moving here. <laughs> so we found a way. There was a series of what felt like, you know, magical, miraculous events that broke down seemingly impenetrable walls to make this possible and uh and we ended up here and it's just such a huge huge gift and to be in this beautiful part of the world on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabeg and Mississauga nations part of Robinson here on Treaty 61 um, we're doing our best to learn more and more about what that actually means all the time and integrate that into actionable ways um, it's so important to us to do our best to our capacity and our knowledge of being respectful to this land. And we really see the land as a partner in the work, um, just as we do with the horses. Uh, it's not that we're here to, you know, use it. We're doing our very best to learn how to be stewards and, and to honor the thousands of years of incredible stewardship that the original people of this place actually had um mm -hmm. so yeah we're we're doing our best to learn about that and and we just feel incredibly grateful that we have an opportunity to partner with land that's so beautiful that's so healing it really feels like it's holding and supporting the work that we choose to do mm -hmm. 
And I'm picturing, I really wish you had that napkin because I'm picturing it in a shadow box on the wall with the curry stain still on it. That's what, oh, no. that's what, <laughs> that's what I'm picturing. Now, if it somehow made it way, it's way back into your life, that would be something, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I think it's long decomposed by now, but yeah. Well, we can dream, can't we? I can dream. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so when you... Um, but so you you buy the farm um i was trying to think of a way to ask this question and not make it sound like a stupid question because in my head it sounds like a stupid question so the horses that you have and have had what is how do you where do they come from do you select them in a certain way um are they rescues are they, what is Basically, how do how do the horses come into your life? That's not a stupid question at all. I think that's like one of the most important questions, and <laughs> one that you know no one would know just off the bat. It's kind of like asking, "Well, how did like how did you have a family?" Like you don't yeah. know. Like family is made up of so many different parts and pieces and and opportunities that look different. So, yeah, I I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> um, so. Our horses have a variety of backgrounds. Um, the first horse that I'm lucky to call family, her name is Grace. And Grace is now 25. She oh, wow. came into my life when she was just turning 16. And um, I, I met her, pardon me? Teenagers. Yes. <laughs> I met her when she was 12. Um, she was uh, purchased from the RCMP musical ride auction oh, wow. by a farrier client. And he uh, worked with her for some time um, and ended up moving to Florida and offered her to me. And I am grateful that in my farrier profession, people tend to have a lot of trust and they offer me horses on a semi-regular basis, which is amazing and I'm humbled by it. And I also have had to be very good at conditioning my no response. <laughs> because or you could have 20 horses. Oh, I could like, have hundreds by yeah. this point. Like I would be so back to know, the chewing again. Oh, I, I would, I would be bankrupt like a thousand times over. <laughs> um, and I wouldn't be doing right by them in that. So I, I was, I said my normal response of that's so kind. Thank you. But no. And I ended up having this opportunity to work with her um, before she was put on the market. And I hate that term because I really don't like the idea of kind of buying and selling horses. It feels kind of like dishonoring yeah. to them. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, that was the reality for her. And, uh, and when I was working with her, it was just one of those life-changing moments again, Scott, where I just <laughs> was like, oh my goodness, like I just can't imagine her with anyone else. And it was like, she beautifully brainwashed me. <laughs> And this was before we had the farm. And part oh. of my reason for being insisting not to say yes to any horses is because I, you know, it takes so much resource to put together, you know, the funds to, to potentially get a farm one day, which already felt like such a pipe dream. Mm -hmm. And um, having a horse doesn't exactly help with that. So, but I, I just knew we had to. And Aquila, I was chatting with him about Grace that evening and he patiently listened to me for about half an hour, talk myself in a big roundabout circle and finally come to the conclusion of, I think we need to take her. <laughs> <laughs> so I really gave, gave 
give Grace credit for the expediency and urgency at which we found the farm um, because mm -hmm. I knew that we needed to have a home for her ASAP. <laughs> That's putting the cart be before the horse. No. It was, it was, yeah. So, and we've had other horses come and there are many horses, um, well, not, not necessarily many, but we, we have five at the farm right now. We've had a couple kind of come and go over the years. I had a couple of border horses. Um, I don't want to do that anymore because our horses, they really are like our family. And mm -hmm. if it doesn't work out for whatever reason, it's just devastating to see them go. I know people do it all the time and I understand that's a different way. And if they're good with that, cool, but I can't, I, my heart mm -hmm. can't take it. So, um, so yeah, we, I just, we, we make sure that our herd is really our own herd at this point, even if it's financially very difficult and that way they can, um, they can really be here for life and be part of our partners in work um, in a way where they can also have that deep sense of security that this is their forever home and that this is really a life that they can lean into that safety with. Mm -hmm. So they all have different varied backgrounds. Honestly, they've all come from some significant trauma as well in okay. different ways, shapes and forms. Um, but just like us, right? Tell me one human who hasn't had some severe challenges. Tell me pretty one lucky human. If, right? If yeah. I mean, I know that they technically exist, but I'm like, I don't know. I really haven't met many or any of them. So yeah, it's like finding a four leaf clover, I think. Yeah. 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 So do you think that, uh, so you mentioned, I'm just going to circle back to you talking about your farrier community mm -hmm. and how there's a lot of trust there. Do you think that's because you all know, number one, how kind of a, rare community that that because it's not like an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor there you know I, I think you're the first farrier that I've ever met <laughs> so do you think that because it's a small community and because you all know what each other goes through and the skills you need and do you think that's where that trust comes from I think there's a variety of reasons and I'll first of all say not everyone trust me in that way not everyone thinks that you know I'm the best person for their horse but I am lucky that we have a lot of wonderful clients and a lot of clients who feel aligned in the kind of way I view horses and horsemanship and I think that within the horse community that's even more rare because um, there can honestly be a lot of accepted abuse in the horse world um, and that uh, it it can be difficult sometimes to find people who are willing to work through challenges with their horses in a way that doesn't cause harm. Right. Um, so, you know, between that and having a lot of experience and knowledge with different kinds of horses and having a lot of medical knowledge through my training and through my experiences working with many vets and nutritionists and really seeing the horse as a whole horse, not as just their feet, um, having a holistic perspective, just like we need to, I think, with people. Mm -hmm. It's not just a part of our body that maybe needs support or healing. It's our whole selves and right. mentally, emotionally, spiritually, physically, everything. So I think that piece really has a huge part to play when people can trust that I have the experience, the knowledge, and also that I'm really seeing their horse as a whole being, not just as a tool. Right. Yeah. So I can't believe we're already coming up on an hour and I haven't even asked you about your services yet. 
<laughs> I guess that's a good sign, right? <laughs> so, yeah, if you want to talk about, um, you know, let, let's talk about the services that you offer and uh, the type of clients you see. And maybe a little bit about uh, if you can think back to the first on the farm, the first time that you had a client do or clients doing this type of work. Um because I know like even today doing this, even though I've done a podcast before, I was obsessing over making sure I knew how the software worked and is the sound right and blah, blah. And I'm just, it almost gets in my way. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just tell us a little bit about the services you offer, type of clients that you see. And I know they're all different, but, and what it was like when you got started. Sure. Um, so services. I offer one-on-one sessions. I offer some group sessions if it's a private group that's coming. Um, we have some public workshops that people can sign up for through the website um, or contact me through there as well. We have a first responder program. Um, it's a seven-week program geared for first responders um, and military and public safety personnel. And um, we have, uh, I'm a self-defense instructor as well. So I do just get the horse to kick them. Is that how that works? <laughs> we don't do it directly with the horse? Oh, okay. That is a part of it. Um, for me, it's connected in a way. Um, that's a whole other story. Maybe we can chat another time. But um, I, I, I trained for four years as a, a teenager pretty intensively in self defense. And then it kind of came back around in my life a few years ago with my instructors. And um, oh, wow. I ended up, she, she wanted me to kind of, you know, she wanted to pass the torch. So she encouraged me to, to learn how to teach. And I'm really glad that I did and that I've started doing that. Oh, and I great. think it's really connected to everything in a strange way, but also I think it makes sense, at least for me, because I think the horses really offers, offers this opportunity to empower ourselves to have the freedom to be who we're meant to become. And that means kind of taking the armor off our heart and leaning into life with a little bit more of that aliveness. And that, has a lot to do with getting into the body that has a lot to do with breaking old patterns, but in ways that feel very healthy. And I think sometimes what can prevent us is if we don't have a felt sense of safety, if we don't have, maybe we have it while we're in session together, but in life, sometimes there's that piece of, I just actually don't feel not even necessarily physically safe, but there's that sense that I I'm not, in control enough of my being of my life as I would like to be. And sometimes that's an unhealthy need for control. That's a whole other story, (laughs) but there is a real piece where if we don't have the skills to know that if there was a physical confrontation, that we actually have the ability to navigate it with really good chances of making it through. And so self-defense for me is a lot more than the fight. It's really about another embodiment practice, doing it in a trauma informed way, where we can learn how to walk a little taller and stronger in all the things we're doing. And I think if we address that core fear very often and lean into that, well, what do we do if this happens? And what do we do if that happens? And actually working through those responses in the body, it's amazing how that impacts everything else in our life. And I think the horses offer us that and the self-defense offers us that, but just from different angles. Mm -hmm. And I think like what you said about walking taller, I think, um, not just with f- physical self-defense, but let's call it mental and emotional self-defense. 
if we feel more secure in ourselves, stronger about ourselves, more confident, we, we do physically walk straighter. And in a, I think in a, in a weird way that maybe not so weird that discourages anyone that wants to hurt us, whether it be physical, emotional, take advantage of us, use us, whatever, because I think predators can see when someone is not walking tall, let's say. So the fact that you put it that way makes a lot of sense that just the act of physically putting your shoulders back and walking tall can itself be self-defense. Absolutely. And it comes all back for me to that empowered embodiment, empowered healing. So whether we're talking about a self-defense session or a session where someone's doing some transformational healing work with the horses, there's that physical shift that happens where I can literally see someone carrying themselves differently from one moment to the next. Um, I think that healing comes in so many different shapes and forms and the horses can offer it and lots of things can offer it. But if we're not incorporating the body in it, it's just going to be stuck in the head and it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible to implement. And so that embodiment piece doesn't mean we have to have physical ability. It just means we're getting back into ourselves, realigning, reconnecting. Mm -hmm. So you're asking, you know, a typical client and the first client, I'll say a typical client, if there is such a thing, I would just say is someone who recognizes that they have some kind of challenge or block or stuckness or feeling small and they want that to change. They don't have to know how, they don't have to know why even, they just need to know that they want some kind of shift to occur and that they're willing to show up and be open to the process of what that might unfold and look like. It has to be the first step, right? It has to be the first step. Yeah, or else it's not gonna help. Exactly, yeah, if someone doesn't want the growth, don't come. (laughs) And they won't. Mm -hmm. Like an implicit contract. If someone's asking for a session or signing up for a workshop, it's because they actually have this inner desire to, to grow, to learn. And to have connection. And I think that connection is such a huge piece in whatever we're doing. For sure. Trauma informed, but more than that, connection supported, right? Really having that ability to prioritize that above everything else that we're not going to rush anything. We're not going to force anything. We're going to sometimes expand and push a little bit, but only Mm -hmm. to the point where the connection is still present and still feels safe. Right. Yeah. And as far as first clients, um, I I started with my, my partner. I started with my cousins, um, with people, a couple of friends, people who I trusted that, you know, if I needed to take time to really, be so precise and figure out and take a pause and reassess that it was okay and that they had enough support and care for me that um, I could feel safe in that Mm -hmm. experience of learning so that now when I work with people from all kinds of backgrounds, even people who show up and are really tough cookies, (laughs) sometimes people show up and even though they kind of want to be there, there's a lot of them that's super skeptical, that wants to test, that wants to prove that it's not real. Mm -hmm. And that's understandable. I really am okay with that as long as there's that little spark inside of someone who actually wants the growth, but they have to just test because they need to actually feel safe in the experience. And when they realize that they can, that the tests come back, that it's positive, that it, it could be okay to lean into this, then we can go from there. And I think sometimes 
there's, like you said, people are skeptical, but, and also sometimes I think people are afraid of, even though the change is going to be good, it's still change. Absolutely. So even good change can be intimidating. And I think, you know, again, I hate to keep harping on myself, but I know I was that way. I'm still that way to a degree. There's still like, it's exciting. I love my job. I love living back here again, um, closer to my friends and my family. Um, So it's all good, but there's still that it's, it's change. And I, you know, and there's always that kind of little bit of intimidation in there. And that's why I think the horsework is so powerful because there's lots of excellent coaching out there. There's lots of excellent healing and learning opportunities. But when we have the opportunity to work with horses in this kind of way, where they're at liberty, where they're not being forced to have any particular response, it's not like an activity of A plus B equals C, we're just learning how and exploring being in relationship with them. And when we lean into some of the changes that feel scary of kind of taking that armor off our heart, having that courage to kind of take the mask off and be present with them in that kind of way, we get the immediate positive feedback of the most incredible sense of support, connection, being really seen, understood, felt in a way that maybe we've never experienced with people. Mm-hmm. And we don't even have to talk or use words to get there. It's mm-hmm. a, that physical feeling of being with them in that way where they really invite us into their world of connection. And so they have that, even though it's still hard and it's still scary, and we're going to go at the pace that's right for us. It's not to say we have to speed it up, but the horses do speed it up just by inviting us into that experience with them. Cause it's one thing to say, okay, here are the tools we can, we can shift things. It's another to say, okay, here's an experience and you get to actually get to that place where mm-hmm. you're having that lived moment that you can't forget because it's now in your body, it's in your knowing. And do you think uh, that your clients and just people in general, again, this is just a thought that popped into my head. I'm sure that they know the horses have no agenda. Because I know when we go into interactions with people, we sometimes think, what's the angle here? Like, what do they want from me? Whereas I'm thinking with the horses, you know, people know that they're not, there's no agenda there. Do you you think, is that part of it as well that, that makes it so? Hugely so. Absolutely. There's no agenda. There's no judgment. There's no expectation. We have a true opportunity to, and there's no placebo. That's the other piece. There's no placebo. It's not like, oh, well, I've trained them to have this response. You can't train a horse (laughs) to feel connected to you. (laughs) Either they do or they don't. Yeah. Yeah. And when they don't, they're also not abandoning you. They're not saying you're not good enough. They're just saying, I am honestly responding to what you're showing me right now. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to show up pretty. You don't have to show up perfect. You just have to show up authentically who you are. Yeah. And when we do that, they're like, oh, there you are. Good to see you. We can work from here. Mm -hmm. So I guess you see often, um, and I won't take forever because we're already over time, but um, I guess you see a progression in, uh, let's say, the first time a horse and a person meet and then going forward, where 
they kind of each get to know are getting to know each other and the comfort level starts to build and it's a lot like human relationships but like you said earlier without the judgment without having to put it you know do your hair and your makeup and your your wardrobe or whatever so i would imagine that uh it's fascinating for you to see a per let's say a person comes in and maybe they're intimidated at first, but then you gradually start to see them warming up, becoming more comfortable. And then by the time they leave and are done, they probably don't want to because they've built that connection. Absolutely. Yeah. Nailed it, Scott. Yeah. I, I would also say that even if someone's worked with a horse many, many times, they're not going to have the kind of comfort necessarily that we have with people in the sense of being okay with just coasting this comes back around mm -hmm. we still can't coast along in the relationship with horses if we really want that authentic deep connection um you know we'll have more comfort with them because we know them more we understand what they're saying to us more we have this you know sense of relationship and history together but the horse is going to consistently come to the table with their honest response and that doesn't let us coast because they're not going to go, you know, how are they? They're, they're going to say, hello, Scott. And you're going to say, hey, and they're going to say, how are you? And who are you today? And you'll mm -hmm. be like, I'm fine. And they'll go, well, I don't care if we've worked together 20,000 times and it's been beautiful every time. If you're going to say, I'm fine with a mask on, I yeah. don't actually see you anymore. So I'm mm -hmm. going to show you that in my body language. Right. And I'm going to be ready to connect as soon as you take that mask off. Yeah, be real with me and I'll be real with you. That's right. Yeah, that's amazing. So why don't you uh, tell all of my millions of listeners, <laughs> eventually, um, where you can be found online, on social media? Sure, thank you. So our website is horsesensenorth.com, H-O-R-S-E-S-E-N-S-E-N-O-R-T-H. And that's our handle on all the social media. So um, at, uh, on Facebook at Horse Sense North, Instagram at Horse Sense North, TikTok at Horse Sense North, and um, LinkedIn. It's my name, it's Carmen Theobald, but I, I'm, I'm struggling with LinkedIn. I have to figure that one out a little bit more. But. Yeah, me too. I, I have it and I <laughs> check it maybe once every six months and don't really do anything with it. So I feel you on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Carmen, thank you very much. I really appreciate this first interview back with the podcast and uh, it's been great. I actually could go another hour and, you know, maybe we'll have to do part two sometime. I would love that, Scott. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. Take care.